journey. Um, we are officially like we, we, you know, we had Scott Morrison represent PEI, but now we are officially like coast to coast. Um, we've made it all the way to the rock for our West Coast and sort of central Canada fans that know the name Carl English, but maybe don't know anything about him um, and just know that, you know, he was an unbelievable basketball player. Uh, sit back and relax and enjoy this episode. There's going to be so many great takeaways, um, an amazing hoops journey. And we are so thankful that uh, we figured out the time change. Uh, he's got a busy life. He's managing three kids, doing his his basketball academy and, and taking the opportunity to sit down with us. So uh, thanks for being with us, sir. How are you today? I'm great, buddy. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to, to, you know, to chalk it up a bit there. And like you said, uh, East Coast is the best coast. Is that what they say? That is that some would say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was the other way around, but I like to steal it. It's all good. <laughs> A minute four in and already shots fired. I like um, it. <laughs> so how have things been for you guys? You know, I we we're in a situation here right now with COVID and everything where we're kind of in another two week sort of lockdown. I know the East Coast has had sort of a unique situation out there and how have you and your family been doing and, and what's it been like in terms of juggling and what are the things that have been put in place for you guys? Uh, things are going well. Um, obviously, we're an island, so I feel we can really control this probably better than most of the places around the world. Uh, we probably right now, I think we only have two or three active cases and they're coming in on travel related people that do uh, shift work or turnaround work from outside the province. So all in all, I think we're one of the safest places um, in the world, actually. But um, on a side note, it's, it was different. It was, it was shut down completely. I, I enjoyed it because it slowed my life down tremendously. And it just allowed me and my family to just focus in on each other. And, and really, we put in a full schedule in the sense of, We'd be active every day, and we were always doing things as a family. And it, to me, it reminded me a lot about my time in Europe when we kind of just had each other. So I didn't, I didn't mind that, and I actually liked uh, the simple part of life when you took out all the outside communication and sense of commitments and things. So that was good. But now, uh, now we're kind of back up to up and running, and and things are starting to come around. Well, that's good to hear, and great perspective, man. Um, so intrigued by everybody that we've had because. You know, we've interviewed a lot of driven people and obviously through your path, you're a driven guy as well and, and worked really hard. And just to hear people's perspective on how they've been able to flip it into a positive. And um, I'm working on that as well, just being able to shut down and put the phone away and focus on my son and my wife and just take advantage of those times that maybe we'll never get back. You know, that like you say, right, it's almost like the world got put on pause and you had an opportunity to rip on the ATVs or go on the boat or whatever it is you guys do and, and do your thing, which is awesome to hear. Yeah, no, it was, uh, you can always let these things um, sidetrack and let you, you know, get you down and out. But I always try to take the positives in, in these type of situations and, we were we were all safe. I mean, we had our bubbles and different things like that. But um, winter was breaking and the weather was getting better, so we really we really took advantage of that and, and turned it. We got to see a lot of places in Newfoundland that I probably typically wouldn't go um, because we were like we called it staycations around here. So a lot of people were traveling parts of Newfoundland, and you know it was it was pretty. Uh, like I said, it was uh, it was pretty amazing. And let's just jump right into it, you know, knowing a lot about your story and maybe probably be, I guess it'll be, when people listen to this, it'll be probably 50-50. Some people will just know the name and know you're a Hooper with the bleach blonde hair representing Hawaii. And then some people will, some people will know a little more in depth about you. So growing up in a place like where you grew up, how was it? Um, what was it like? What what were the sports that were you were involved in? And, and when did basketball sort of start to really hook into your life and get you sort of, you know, almost to that addicted point, right? My, I'll tell you, I'll take you way back. So for me, yeah. uh, I'm just going to dive right in there because I'm eventually, I eventually feel we're going to get there anyway. So for me, most of my life got turned upside down when I was five years old. Um, I lost my mother and my father in a house fire and me and my brothers got separated 
Uh, we went to live with different of our parents, siblings, uh, sprinkled around. Um, we were three of my brothers went to live with Aunt Florence. I went to live with Aunt Betty and Uncle Junior. And then Bradley, my second oldest brother, came in to live with my late uh, Aunt Shirley. So um, we were all separated at an early age. So for me, I was just a kid trying to find myself. I think... Uh, basketball, I can truly honestly say basketball saved my life in a sense. It just gave me purpose. It made me free. And I think I was, I did have some ADHD. I probably still do, but it allowed me to cope with everything I was dealing with. So um, I started playing at a really young age, you know, in the early grades, grade school, and then, you know, grade four and five you know, just start taking it more serious in a sense. It was my favorite sport. Now, I was a multi-sport athlete and played many different things, but finances were always an issue, and basketball was my chosen my chosen path. Um, ran track and things, but they were more like cross-country. That was more just to get in shape for basketball, so it was kind of like a prerequisite we used to run just so we get in shape for basketball. Um, and then as I got older, I would say grade 7 and 8, Obviously, when you start to have success with something, it becomes, you know, it becomes part of you. So two things with me, I, I became, you know, I started to have success with it, but it really helped me be free. It helped me close off that part of my life or hide that part of my life and, you know, pardon the pun, but bury it. And it just allowed me to express my emotion and express myself inside the game. And as a kid, to deal with that tragedy back in, you know, 1980, late 80s, early 90s, you know, there was no shrinks. I didn't ever talk to anybody till this day. I never, you know, we faced a milestone or a, a tragedy in our lives. And, you know, you just kind of pushed it aside and kept trucking. Whereas now something like that happens, you're, you're probably in a shrink three times a day. So <laughs> I don't know which is the right way. I don't know which is the wrong way. That's how I did. And basketball became my way out. Basketball became my, my life and my sanctuary. So then every day when I played, I just felt free. So I grew up playing on the side of the highway. Mm -hmm. We had one road in, one road out. There was 50 houses, you know, uh, 70, 80 people. Right now, there's I think there's 15 people live in that town. Mm -hmm. um, we had no playgrounds, no corner stores, no stoplights. Um, so I built, we built a homemade hoop, me and my uncle. And eventually I got, uh, I allowed, my aunt allowed me to put it down on the road because that was the only flat surface that was around. Now, on one side of the road, there was a ditch full of water, so you you try to keep your ball out of that. And on the other side of the road, there was a 20-foot drop where the ball would go all the way down the meadow, so you try to – so, you know, that would help with your speed and agility, I guess. And uh, <laughs> I guess the biggest, the biggest one is the cars. You're always dodging. <laughs> and I remember one day I was after getting a new ball, so I think I got a, a basketball for my birthday. I was in grade 8 or 9. And I was down there and the car's coming, but my ball slipped out of my hands and I jumped out to save the ball um, because, you know, it was like a piece of gold to me at the time. So, yeah, I got a few of those stories, but that's where that's where it all started for me back in a really small town with a horrible tragedy that affected my life. And that's where that's where the love of basketball just started for me. Yeah. Um, thank you for, you know, sharing that right away. And um, just, you know, I'm, I'm a high school teacher myself and just thinking about, you know, what it would, you know, kids and how hard it is to just figure yourself out at a young age anyways, right? And then to have that happen. And do you, do you ever reflect and think like, was it easier upon reflection do you think that you were in a smaller community and that's what locked you into basketball and didn't and if you had say you've been in a place like vancouver where maybe there was a whole bunch of other distractions and maybe some some negative people pulling you into negative things um because you obviously would were in a place where you know you're juggling with your emotions every day on top of trying to you know fit in as a young man do you feel ever think of like maybe the small community is what benefited you in that sense well, one one thousand percent. I mean, you have growing up in rural Newfoundland, you have a lot of things against you, but then you also have a lot of things in your favor in the sense of everyone in your community is there to help you. Like when I was in grade nine, I made the Newfoundland provincial team and you know, there was a cost associated with that with travel and everything. Well, all the people in the community held bingo games and card games. And they all raised the money for me to go and play. So just like little things like that, I mean, 
I don't lock my doors when I'm out there. I leave the keys in my car. And, you know, if something, if someone needs a hand to build something, everybody gives them a hand. So there's, there's obviously, rural Newfoundland is very special. It's not just scenic. There's all the other things, you know, your friendly, helping neighbor is something that, you know, that you come to, you come to love and you come to enjoy. So as a kid growing up with those type of things, you know, there was a lot of people there to help us. So yeah, I think growing up there, would drastically change if I was in a different, you know, a different city because, you know, a lot of times in Vancouver or Toronto or major cities like I've lived in, it's, you don't know the person that lives next to you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and very, you might wave or say hi, but that's the only interaction you really have with them. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you know, you're interacting with your neighbors all the time. So it's, it's different. Yeah. I think we need a little bit more of that in the world, man. I just, uh, I think, I think we do. Also. Yeah. We went, when we moved, we, we had our son and then we moved from an apartment to a townhouse because God knows no one can afford a house in Vancouver. So yeah. not on a teacher's salary, that's for sure. But um, one of the things we really overlooked was we, we didn't even think about community because it was just like you say, you know, we live in a condo. We go up the elevator. We knew the people that lived next to us. We never said more than hi in the hallway. And then yeah. we just lucked out and we moved into this community that has these great families and we hang out, we get the, you know, propane fire pit at night and the kids run around and we just didn't even think about that part of our lives. And, um, I think we need way more of those opportunities and people to just be able to let their guard down and not worry about locking the doors and, and take care yeah. of each other. That's awesome stuff, man. I love that. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you just said there. There's something special about having good neighbors and, you know, getting together and just, you know, just having a good support network around you. And then your high school life, like, you know, for the people that don't know what, what did that look like for you? And when did you start to think to yourself like, Hey, okay, I want to, you know, you get ID'd as a grade nine, you're playing on the provincial team, which is crazy regardless of what province you're representing. Um, and where do you start to think, all right, I, I want to move on with this basketball thing and make some strides, you know, at the post-secondary level? Um, for me, again, like I, I started, I had huge dreams as a kid. Um, grade nine, you know, they started to come to life a little bit. But then in grade 10, um, at that time, I played for Canada Games team, for Newfoundland's Canada Games team. And we went to Manitoba. So I was one of the youngest people at the games. So luckily I made what was that? What year was that? 96, I want to say. Oh, my gosh, man. I, that, I was there. I played in that one. Yeah, that's awesome. So we were, uh, so I was, uh, most, of the, most of the teams, that was at the time Canada Games then was 19 and under. So they were, or 18. So you could be in university. So, like, we had five or six players that were at Memorial. A couple of guys were gone away. One guy was at Acadia. And and they were our main they were our main guys and I was one of the youngest people at the games but towards the end of the games I ended up starting for our team so you know that's kind of when I was like okay now it's real and to be honest so the next part of it kind of all just became uh, like a myth but um, so I was on the mailing list for the Newfoundland team and they sent out this pamphlet in the mail and one of the people in it was Andre Sola Andre Sola played in. Uh, in Ontario, but he played for Oak in Oakville and St. Thomas Aquinas. And basically they were highlighting the fact that he went to, from Oakville, he went to uh, George Washington on a scholarship. Mm. Um, so I just, I just sat it in my head. Like when I get something in my head and I told my aunt, I was like, I'm going to fish and work and I'm going to Ontario to live with uh, my brother or cousin or one, like a brother to um, so she finally, she kind of got to the point where first times with no, and I just kept up it. So in grade 11, I just, I didn't play any Newfoundland basketball. I didn't play under 17s. I didn't do nothing. I just fished that summer and I went away for my, uh, for my grade 12 year in Ontario because I kind of, I kind of hit a peak here in Newfoundland. Like I was averaging 60, 65 points a game and you could never get a look. Right. So, you know, I playing against in the men's league, playing against university teams and still doing the same, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, get, I couldn't get a look. So I had my mindset on that and then I just moved away to Ontario. Mm, that's crazy. And just trying to like picture you 
like what what's your mind frame you know you're going back to residence or the hotel at canada games and you're like starting with a bunch of guys that have played first year university are you like giggling to yourself are you like like are your eyes as big as like you know boulders like what's your what's your mind frame at that point of your because you're so young like you're barely even growing armpit hair at that age you know you kind of got an understanding where i come from to really understand my mindset like i'm from mm-hmm. the town i said with there's 15 people live there now um, you basically drive through the town in two minutes. Uh, my high school and my school that I went to from grade kindergarten to 12 had less than 200 kids. So it's when I say small, I mean small. Mm-hmm. Um, like Hoosiers, way smaller. So, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, so now you take it and you go up to that point. That was the second time I was ever on an airplane. So, you know, I'm, I'm starstruck would be an under understatement, but I mean, I, I rose to the occasion and, and kept developing and kept growing. And even through it all, the ups and downs, I just, I just had this belief. And I think I was so driven because I just really loved what basketball did for me as a person and what it did for my mental, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I was always just so driven to be the best possible version of me. I could be, and that's kind of where it all was. So, um, the roller coaster really started <clears throat> when I got up to Ontario because the teachers went on strike. So I moved, you know, who's I left my family, my my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife. Um, I left everything to, to you know to chase this dream to try to get a, a scholarship, a, a scholar, a college scholarship. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> so I put everything on the side and I put everything on hold to try to chase this dream. And then when yeah. I go to this school, which following in the footsteps of, of Sola, and then the teachers go on strike. So picture now that here I am at a school that has 2,500 people. I'm not there for the education, but I knew it was part of the process. But on the same block, the school that walk across the street in the public school, and they are they're open. And I'm playing against all these guys. We're up at Sheridan College running. I'm killing these university guys there. But I was always playing basketball. And then I randomly met true a weightlifting coach at the school. I met this guy, a friend of a friend. And I started playing on an AAU team, which was one of the first. It was uh, uh, Adidas Prep Stars, North America. So we had we had three guys that year that came over from the Russians to buy away of Russia. I don't even want to get into it. Um, but they came by the Russians. Uh, ben Easy, uh, who went to Louisville. Another guy went to UCLA. One guy played for Washington for a little bit. Um, and we just had a stud team of guys in, in Canada. And, you know, we were doing some hurt on people. But, like, first time I went down, first game we had, <clears throat> I don't know if you read my book, but, the first game we had was in Jana Finch, and I've never, never experienced a place like Jana Finch before, obviously. So I go in there, and I'm the only white guy, and my coach is like, "Don't, don't talk to nobody. You know, just don't talk noise, don't talk trash. You're just, you know, just, just don't talk." He said. <laughs> so we first go in there, and I got to go through the metal detectors, and I'm freaked out right off the hop. I'm like, where are you taking me? <laughs> so anyway, I'm in the warm up, and my own teammates are talking shit to me. So they're like, uh, "Can you hang, ghost? Ghost, what are you doing here, ghost? This ain't your neighborhood, ghost." Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, "Oh boy," but I'm just there, wouldn't speak. So about two, three plays in, I get the ball over on the wing, and I done this like rock, little rocker step I used to do, and I go down to the middle, and I dunk on a seven footer, and the place the place went up. They start throwing chairs. They shut, they shut down the game. I ran under a table. Um, but after that, after that game, I, I feel I have no problem going to Jane and Finch after that. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like my, like I'm here now. And so I bounced around. I was still at that school, but I played at a North American Invitational with another high school. So first game, I go out and score 30. The second game, no one on the team would pass me the ball. So I would get the ball after the rebound. I'd just go down and score, but, you know, average in the 20s for the tournament, but full of full of college scouts there. But a lot of scouts at that point, this is over Christmas or something, a lot of them didn't have scholarship. <clears throat> so I had some that were watching me and some that weren't, and they were trying to follow my progress, but we had no more games. 
So Syracuse were big on trying to put me in a prep school because I had another year that I could go to a prep school because where I was young. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I go down to Atlantic Cape Camps, which is the same time as ABCD and Nike Five Star. So I obviously never got invited to either one of those. But I went down to Atlantic Cape Camps in New Jersey, and I tore that up, and I was MVP. And in the, MV, in the All-Star game or MVP game final, a lot of scouts came over from Adidas and and Nike because word was getting out who's this kid. So then after that tournament, I had 50, 60 scholarship offers. But I went, uh, <clears throat> I said, I, I was planning on going to prep school. You know, Syracuse would put me in a prep school. So I was planning on going there. So we go down, Hawaii comes in the picture and they came back to Toronto to call me and they came back to Newfoundland and met my aunt and uncle and, you know, were just really putting the pressure on me. So I was like, well, I'm going to go out there on a, I'm going to go out there on a visit because the school in Pennsylvania was taking too long on their paperwork. So anyway, Syracuse called me on the Friday. I was leaving on Saturday. Said so we got the paperwork all figured out. They were like, whatever you do, don't sign when you go to Hawaii. <laughs> and you know, I was, I was going to Hawaii just, you know, to, to go it's to Hawaii. Hawaii. So. Yeah. yeah smart man yeah i go out there and the rest is the rest is history i just fell in love with the island the coaches told me everything you know like every coach when you go there and me mm-hmm. being young and dumb i believed everything they were going to tell me but uh it was beautiful it was it was yeah. beautiful that's where i spent the next four years yeah I, so many awesome takeaways like i think you know being out here on the west coast and working with youth and you know just a lot of the kids is looking like not that they look for it but sometimes we hear a lot of excuses about well i don't have this and i don't have that and now we're we're sitting down and we're talking with a guy who's talking about building a hoop on the side of a highway with fishing net and never made an excuse and always found a way to get things done and i I think you know for the people listening right now regardless if you're a grown man or woman and you're in your career whatever your career is or if you're a young hooper like don't always look glass half full, right? I, th- I think it's so easy to look half empty. And when you hear you you talk, the confidence in your voice, all that you've been through, and there's so many different ad- adversity moments and like how your heart must have been racing the day that you hopped on that plane to fly to Toronto. I'm sure you're excited, but you're also like, what am I getting myself into? And then to, you know, to have the swagger and confidence to walk into a place like Jane and Finch for those that don't know and be confident enough to get, get it done there. Like this, there's so many just awesome things I think people need to listen to and take away so far. We're 22 minutes in, and this is a, this is a note taker, man. So thank you for sharing all these stories. It's great. No, awesome. It's uh it's all part of the journey. I think uh, it just prepares you for what's next, but I was never, I was never someone that's going to, you know, let a setback or I, I, the thing that, the thing that defied me at such an early age was also mm. the thing that motivated me, but then it also the thing that put everything in perspective. So, right. um, so for me, all these other little sidebacks, setbacks or takebacks were nothing because my whole world was turned upside down at five years old would be an understatement. So, um, you know, Hawaii was the next step. We go down there. I redshirted my first year because of ankle surgeries. Um, I was having some trouble with my ankle, so we we decided that was best. So I played one, two games, and then we redshirted, which allowed me to get used to the university, allowed me to, you know, just figure out my classes, figure out the schedule, and just get bigger and stronger. So I mm-hmm. came back from that, um, played that summer with uh, Team Canada, and came back from that just eager and ready to go. But I guess the coach had different had different plans for me. He wasn't big on he wasn't big on freshmen. Um, wasn't big on playing me. I'd tear up practices and, you know, I'd get in for 10 points in five, six minutes and then wouldn't play the next two, three games. Um, so I was, to be honest with you, I was getting ready to transfer. We were already after contacting the contacts that we had before. And, you know, there's some intriguing teams out there. So, um, that's kind of where it was at. So most of that season I was training for the unknown and I was pushing for the unknown. And then with about 10 games left or these seven or eight games left in the season, you know, the, I think a couple of the seniors went to him like, you got to play this kid. He's killing us every day. We can't guard him. You know, you're not even giving him a chance. And he, he decided to give me a chance. And I let us, I let us in and I averaged like for those, those games and the tournaments, those 10, 12 games, I averaged like 14, 15, six, seven assists and four or five rebounds. So I was playing point guard. 
And we went into the we went into a whack tournament and no one really knew me. And I remember one of the best quotes I ever got was from Jerry West. It was across the thing. He's like it was like English is like a young Jerry West is what he said. And like I went to that tournament and in the final game, so we went in as like a six seed, so we were nowhere near being favored. Um and we played Tulsa in the final and I scored thirty two, I wanna say, and I hit I hit the game to put it into overtime and I hit all the points in overtime. But like, that was my, that was my moment. And I went from in, in almost like a month span, I went from transferring schools to not knowing what's going to happen to just becoming a rock star. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to, we went to the tournament and in perspective, I think Hawaii's been to the tournament five or six times this year was their hundred, hundred anniversary of their school mm-hmm. of Hawaii basketball. So we were there three times with me, so or two two NCA and one NIT. So two of their five times was with me leading the way. Mm-hmm. So it one of those things where you you look back at it now and it, it was amazing. But I went and it, it just turned my whole life upside down to for the better. So everything I was promised now was coming to life. You know what I mean? I, things yeah. became a lot a lot easier on campus. Let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> i was gonna ask you actually how how hard was it to get to school because i'd be like damn i just want to go to the beach all day but <laughs> well when the weather you kind of get accustomed to it i mean yeah. we had the, my junior year actually i give you we traveled so much because when we right. traveled like road trips were 10 and 12 days at a time so mm. when we traveled my junior year we were on the road for 57 days and we were back for 13 days of school Oh my God. That was so like we'd always travel with uh, psychologists and professors. So we'd mm-hmm. always be having a study hall. We'd always be doing different things. So it was, uh, it was very, very interesting to say the least. Yeah. Crazy. Um, we've I've taken the team to Maui a few times and go, we go play some schools and just hearing how they operate on their leagues and stuff like that. So unique, like sleeping in each other's gyms and playing a back to back and then flying back in a 12 seater, you know? So Hard to get a university education and yeah, that's, that's crazy. And just so intriguing too. you, you know, you're just, you're so ready for that just window of opportunity. And, um, so many of us have had those moments in our lives and maybe they've pl- passed and we haven't even realized, or maybe we've tried and failed, but you know, the, the idea is that you try and you got that one chance and then just blew up from there, which is so cool. Um, also love how you just quickly ran over and said, yeah, I went back and played for Team Canada. Let's just touch on that a little bit. I mean, for, you know, for me being someone who played at, and played at university level, played at Brandon University and um, was around a lot of great guys. And did you ever imagine, I mean, I know you, you're, you, you sound like such a goal-driven guy and you had huge ideas and dreams in your head, but to get that call or that opportunity to play for Canada, was how special was that for you and, and what were those moments like? Um, playing for Team Canada was, you know, some of the best moments of my career. Mm. Um, when you when you put on the jersey, you're fighting with a group of guys for your country. I mean, obviously, it's not nothing like going to war or nothing, but we always looked at it like this is our part to put basketball on the map in in um, in Canada. And like we started, we were always following the Steve Nash regiment and i mean steve is an icon and a legend and you know was a role model to most of us but that was the last time that we were we were at the olympics so we were always fighting to try to get there and you know we made the worlds in 2010 and that was a huge step um and now just to see where it's at Mm -hmm. you know it's it's amazing but uh there's something going on there as well, man, because there's that much talent and we're still underachieving. So something's got to give sooner or later. Yeah, I agree with you. I have a few buddies that we still, uh, we still relive the Venezuela game where they lost at the buzzer or whatever. And we didn't I make it. Funny about that. I was on that team that summer and yeah. I, I tore my tricep. So I, I left camp a week before we went to Venezuela, but we mm-hmm. played Venezuela three times prior to that. And we beat them each time by a span of thirty plus. So, and this was without without the main NBA guys. So, when the Venezuela game came up, if someone had to look at me and say bet bet a million dollars, I would have bet a million dollars because (laughs) there was no part of me thinking they were going to lose that game. 
Yeah. That I know, man. Damn, tearing your tricep, that has got to be – how does one do that? Yeah, that was a bad one. I got – that kind of that kind of ended my time with Team Canada and, and kind of blackballed me because I was with Team Canada for all this time. And I tore my tricep in camp. And, I mean, I, I lost – I lost a lot of money because of that, and that they never covered my insurance. So we're not we're not in the best terms right now. So Fair I think enough. things like that, I think things like that is a lot of reasons why a lot of people don't play. Like everybody's always yeah. like, why don't these play? There's a lot more to it than just scooting up and play. Everybody wants to play, but if your contract and things are not covered, you could end up in a situation like I did, and it really affects your future. Like you look at you take a guy like Kelly. I follow Kelly. Me and Kelly are real close. Like mm-hmm. Kelly never. Got right till the end of the playoffs because Kelly got hurt with Team Canada. It was supposed to be a few weeks. It ended up being a few months. Well, guess what? Miami ain't waiting for them. The guys that are sitting on the bench ain't waiting for them. They're taking that opportunity. If they go out and do their thing, well, then Kelly's back at the end of the bench, and then he's got to work his way in or wait for his opportunity. So that's Mm -hmm. what the average person doesn't just understand. Like There's a lot more to come to it. Everybody wants these guys to play. But if your if your endorsements and your contracts are not covered, it can turn ugly really fast. Yeah, and that's that's, and that's where the food on the table is, right? Like it's not oh, you know as, as prideful as it is to play for Canada. Like there's a future, and we all know basketball doesn't last forever. And you know, once you get into retirement, you want to make sure that you're taken care of, or at least have some stuff to fall back on though. So that, that, that's great insight and good stuff for people to think about. Right. And I think the casual fan maybe does question at times and want just because they're fans and they want the best product to be on the floor for, to represent our nation. But man, if I think if we're all in that situation and it's a, it's a matter of, you know, what's coming into my bank account for the next five years of my life or, you know, playing for Canada and maybe not getting that, I think we all know what decision we would make. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's, that's what happened to me. Like I said to you, when you lose that, I led the Spanish league in scoring. I'm coming off the best, the best season of my career averaged almost 20 points a game. Traditionally, when you lead the Spanish league in scoring, you either go on to the NBA or you sign a multi-million dollar contract. So I tore my tricep uh, that summer with team Canada. And I had, I had those offers on the table, but I couldn't sign the contract, you know? So with all that stuff and everything happening, you lose the money, future earnings, and then you lose the contract there. And, you know, I didn't even get the insurance that was supposedly covered. So it's, it's been a, it's been a fight. It's been a struggle, but you know, mm-hmm. it's all, uh, it's all part of it. Well, text Kelly and tell him to get us get on the podcast with us. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lad Clothing is the most unique shopping experience in the Lower Mainland. The owner, Shane Meyer, has worked hard to create a personal experience, offering clothing, specialized coffee, haircuts, and beard trims. Located in Lower Lonsdale at 221 West Esplanade in North Vancouver, seconds from the C-Bus. If you are unable to make it to the store, you can shop online at shopthefoldgroup.com. And oh yeah, in store, if you mention a hoops journey, you'll receive 15% off anything store-wide. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewers Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Don Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favorite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoops Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, much better than the owner, Sam Payne's Streaky Jump Shot. We hope to see you Parkside. So then you're in, uh, you know, you're, you have an interesting sort of, what happens with you towards the end of Hawaii, you know, you're lighting it up. You're, you're just, you're, you're prime. You're, you're taking over Honolulu, you know, doing your thing, right. You're locked in and starting to obviously think about next level. Um, talk a little bit about that transition from, you know, when you decided to declare for the draft and cause there's some interesting things that happen there. And then, you know, you go on to have 
an amazing career in Europe. And like you talked, talked on a, a little bit about, you know, lighting it up in Spain and just, you know, I, I think it's cool also because yeah, there's, we have goals and aspirations in the NBA. We always think NBA, but man, I'd, I want to talk about how many great players you had the opportunity to play against overseas as well. Cause you know, I just finished reading the Nick Nurse book and he talks about how whatever it's like 240 players in the NBA. Right. But, there's so many other guys in the world that can play hoops and put it in the bucket. So long question, but just talk about how Hawaii wraps up for you. And then you move on to, to the next level after that. Um, well, I was at the stage in my career where I was, you know, I was top seven or eight scoring in the nation. I mean, Hawaii's ranked, um, you know, I've been leading them. People wanted me to leave after my sophomore year, but I, at that point I didn't feel I was ready. I didn't feel like, my dream always was to was to get a college scholarship. I think halfway through that college experience, I had dreams of trying to make it to the NBA, and that's where the focus shifted. So then my junior year, I, I graduated. So I graduated early, and I was kind of just ready for the change. I um, took some bad advice, and I decided to enter for the NBA draft. I was Initially, my goal was to just enter and then pull my name out, and a couple of things happened. Um, I worked out for 13 teams and every time you do that, there was a cost associated with it. If you had to go back to school that I wasn't aware of. So I had to pay back all that money. So anything they paid for me while I was there, which I think summed up to be just under a hundred grand. And I didn't have any support staff or anything like that to cover that type of money. So, um, we, de we declared for the draft to try to put it full on in, and there was no players union or anything like that, that would help you you know, let you truly know where you're getting drafted to. And I was projected as high as 20 and all the way to, to 45. So I was like, I'll take my chances on it. And then I went, uh, I went undrafted. So, uh, it was, we had the agents for me threw a party up the Indian motorcycle, downtown Toronto, all my family and stuff came up. Like this was one of the biggest days of my life here. We're coming through and, the, uh, so we're all there and my wife at the time is there and all my brothers and my aunt, you know, so you got to think. And then right across Canada, I was the real deal. Mm -hmm. So I was next Steve Nash. So there was multi-million dollar contracts on the go as well, all based on that night. Um, so needless to say, when David Stern and then Adam Silver came on and every light in the building shined on my face. Let's just say they were burning the face off me when, when they never <laughs> called my name. So, um, it was a tough night. Like I said, it was, it was probably the lowest point in my basketball career. And the, um, you know, I, I woke up the next day. No, the top off that night was my agent was after getting me a cheap suit. This could be funny. So the agent was after getting me a cheap suit. So I sweated so much the night of the thing for not being drafted. When when I got up to do the interviews or, or to go to the car, my pants ripped from the crotch right up to the ass, the top. And I'm just like, I look up above and I'm like, what what did I do to deserve what this night was based on? So I guess what they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But um, I got up the next day and we got back to the grind and I just I went in with a, you know, just that fire again. And I went to, I went to uh, Indiana and there was so many crazy events happened to me, man. That's yeah. what's so crazy. Like I was at Indiana and I was in there for a week in the mini camp and the last two days, Ron Artest came and he wanted to play for some reason. Like Ron's a great guy, but at that point in his career, like he was locked down defender. So I was tearing up the camp. So they put Ron on me. And Ron starts just pumping the shit out of me, throwing me to the ground. But I obviously this is Ron Artest. I'm trying to make a team. I just get back up, wouldn't say nothing, but kept coming at him. So right after that on Friday evening, Donnie Walsh said, I like you and I want to sign you. I had this major chip on my shoulder. I said, Donnie, no offense, man. I was like, I thought you guys were going to draft me. I said, I'm heading to Minnesota in the morning. I said, I'm going to whoever wants me until I get a contract. He's like, Carl, he said, on the night of the draft room, he said, I wasn't in there. He said, my granddaughter got hit by a car. And he said, I was at the hospital. He said, you were my draft pick. But he said, someone they drafted someone else. So I was like, okay, well, if that's how you feel, I was like, I'll come back or you, sign, you send me a contract. So on Monday morning, he sent me a contract. And I signed a two-year but partially guaranteed. Now, 
for over half the contract, which was the most money I've ever dreamed of in my life. So at that so, point, um, so I went back there. Now we had an amazing summer training and I was there and they moved, they moved me and my wife there and we had a house and everything. And they put my wife, she was starting school and I was working out every day with Isaiah and his staff. And then everything changed. They brought in Larry Bird and two weeks later they got rid of Isaiah and then they brought in Rick Carlisle and Rick Carlisle brought in four point guards with him. And then I was going to be a combo guard and everything went just turned upside down. And then they signed Jermaine to the multi at the time, which was 120. So then it became luxury tax. And then my 500 was only a million on the books. Whereas the guys that they were getting rid of, they were getting 4 million. So that would equal 8 million. So it all came down to dollars and cents and I was out. So I went and spent two years in the dealer. The first year was a struggle. Um, just trying to deal with everything that was happening and trying to get my niche. And that guy was playing some random guy. The following year, I had a great year with Dennis Johnson, the late, great Dennis Johnson. I learned a lot from him. And we went uh, we went and played well, but always testing rules. And towards the end of that year, um, was real close to Orlando. They called me and said that we were going to bring you in. So I um, went to the airport. And, um, uh, they had a ticket, everything there, went to the airport, just getting ready to get on the flight. My agent was meeting in Orlando and they called me and said, no, Otis tore blood his knee. We need to get a big guy. They were, they were signing me for the rest of the season. So it would have been almost two months. So, um, at that point then I was like, shit, this, um, I'm going overseas. This roller coaster is too much because the money wasn't very good. So I had a two year window because I was getting the Indiana Pacer money. Right. So after that, then they were throwing crazy money from overseas. So I went overseas, and my first year was in Italy. Obviously, culture shock from based on you know food, language, everything that was going on, and just just being there, and you know did well, but not what I'm used to. Like it was only eight, ten points, but they were happy with my role. So my following year, I went to Croatia, and it was funny because the coach in Italy was from. Uh, Croatia, I think, or somewhere there. He had Baltic connection, and he recommended me, and I thought he hated me because <laughs> you know the way he treated me the year before. Like you got to understand, I'm coming now. You're going when you're talking Serbians and Croatians, like they believe and they are some of the best coaches in the world. Like they would look at me and tell me, uh, "You ran that in six, nine, you ran that in seven and a half steps. I think you can run it in six steps." You know, they, they were doing everything. So. Wow. Um, you know, uh, one day lost it. I scored 28 points. The next game, next game deactivated me. Like just dumb, <laughs> dumb, crazy things that was going on for my first year. Um, but the money was great. The life was great. And just understanding everything about it was, 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 was what was hard. My next year I went to Croatia, dominated that league. I played for um, uh, Dragon Petrovic's brother, Oslo Petrovic. Uh, amazing experience. Zadar was you know, a huge basketball culture. They used to, once I dominated that, so there was a game against, there was a huge civil fight between them and Serbia. Mm -hmm. And we played, we played uh, Partizan, which was in Serbia. And I wasn't supposed to play because they were late on their payments. And I said, I'm not playing. And my agent came to me and he was great. He said, you have to play. He said, it's more than basketball. And anyway, I went out and scored 33 points and we won the game. And I don't think I paid for a thing in the city after that, you know, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. So I became instant, instant legend in that, that country. And I led the Adriatic in scoring. I had the Croatian league in scoring. It was, uh, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty amazing. And then after that, I had a ton of offers. I even had some NBA stuff after that to come back. Um, I came back to Toronto that year and had a great camp in Toronto. Like they tracked everything. They told my agent one day, like I was playing combo guard. So one day I shot 22 for 25 and, and I was right there. It was between me and a guy, uh, Jamario moon. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and I called my agent. He's like, how's it going? I was like, I'm tearing this shit up, but there's one guy here that every chance he gets, he jumps from the free throw line. Or I said, <laughs> he over the room. And I said, every freaking time he does it, there's 17 executives and presidents. And I said, every time he does it, every one of them nearly fall off their chair. So I said, 
sure enough, they went and gave him a partial guarantee to come to camp. And that's all I needed. I only wanted a partial, whether it was 50 or 100,000 to come to camp because it gives me more than the other guys. So the chances and the probability of them keeping me is a lot higher. Mm-hmm. So we, we did that and they kept him. So I said, shag it. And I went back, I went back to Europe. And at this point in my career, like I'm, I went to Spain, I led Spain, I led Gran Canaria. I was top like the next five, six years I'm in Spain, but I'm dominating the Spanish circuit. And Spain is the best league outside the NBA. Like, the top four or five teams would go and finish in the top 20 in NBA teams. Like, it's not right. like, not like a major drop off. Like, I don't think people understand. And, mm-hmm. and like some of these teams, their budgets are 30, 40 million euros, mm-hmm. you know? So the money is, the money is crazy. Like there was a point, my biggest regret with all of it with basketball wise is when I became the man or the guy in Europe and I was signing in June and July early, I wish I had to try the NBA then because that's when I was truly ready when I was 28, 29, 30. Um, but the money I would have took a huge pay cut to go to the NBA at that point, mm-hmm. you know, cause I was still on like third year money. So, and, and at that point the, the pipeline wasn't the same like it is now. If you go to Europe and you have a great year, you can go back to the NBA back then. It wasn't like that. So yeah. it was, uh, it was amazing. I went right through Spain. I won a championship in Spain in my third year. I mean, our starting line was me, Marcelino Huertes from Brazil that played at the Lakers. Tiago Splitter played with San Antonio, won championship there. Mir Spitelitovic. I mean, we had we had a stud. There was four other all-stars on there. Like, we beat Barcelona in the final and killed them. So that kind of... From there, then went to Barcelona where Ricky Rubio and Rudy Fernandez played. I mean, then I went to Sevilla with Christoph Brzingis. He was only 16 at the time, and and Thomas Zagoransky. Um, you know, I've played with I've played with some some amazing some amazing players. Um, then I went from where, from there I went to Madrid in 2012. That's when I led the league in scoring. Um, then went back to Tenerife after that. Then I went to Puerto Rico. I went to Germany. I went to Greece. I had a great year. I led Greece in scoring. Um, from Greece, then I came back, and in my last two years of my career, I played here in uh, in St. John's with the uh, with, with the Newfoundland or with the team here in St. John's. I mean, wow, it's awesome, man! I love it. It's cool, and also to think like you know you have some children. So I'm assuming some of your children were born overseas as well. Is that correct? Or yeah, yeah, yeah two of my kids were born in Spain, so they got Spanish citizenship. Um, one of the craziest stories I'll tell you was 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 in uh, we're in Greece. So in Greece, you're not allowed to you're opposing fans, so it's only home fans allowed. So our fans was an important game. So like 400 of our fans stormed the gym on the road. <laughs> they beat up the, they beat up the security guard and came in there. So <laughs> and, uh, we're warming up, and the cops came out all the riot gear, and they throw the tear gas to try to get them out of there. They won't leave. And so we all had to exit the building, waited outside for like 40 minutes. We go back in playing and, you know, tensions are high, but I'm loving this type of shit. So I'm there <laughs> going, I'm going crazy. So in the game I had like 36, but I start talking noise and get going. They come out like my security. So everywhere I had to go, I had security with me because I was a target where I was, you know, leading this league and scoring. And I always like to talk, talk nonsense stuff, right? Trash talk. So the guys were like, English, no talk today, no talk. So anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm running down the court. And I, saw this, I saw this bottle coming at me and I ducked. And anyway, it was a bottle of pee. So they're after peeing in the, bo- in the bottle, throwing bottles of pee at me. I was making gestures and stuff. So needless to say, it was, uh, it was, a, pretty, it was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, I just... It's cool, man. Like, yeah, ultimately, like you're talking about, you know, you would have sacrificed for the NBA too. But I just like what an amazing story you have, and the and the things that you get to sit down and, you know, every now and then have a beer and just reflect on to yourself. Like that's so cool, and and the opportunities that you allowed. You know, your wife's with you; she gets to see the world. You have some kids with spat. Like, there's so many cool things. Like, for a guy for, from the Rock, man. And I want to talk about um, before we get you on your way. Um, like talk about just coming back home and kind of playing and obviously that's where the connection with Doug Plum happens and um you know going to St. John's and playing there and what that was like and you know seen saw some cool videos and game footage you know you had uh Ransford out there I think as a teammate too and but just seeing like you know 
going from a kid shooting on the highway to almost basketball coming full circle for you must have been pretty special to have that opportunity um, to kind of wrap up your career that way. Talk a little bit about that. And I mean, you were still sort of filling it too. Let's not fool ourselves. Hopefully there's no men's league out there because uh, you'll be uh, putting a lot of guys to shame out there. <laughs> to me, it was uh, it was pretty amazing. Like I, I had some, some great offers. I was actually training in Europe. And I was with uh, Olympiacos, who's probably top five in all of Europe. And yeah. I just went over there eventually to get in shape. But they actually liked me as a player, and I was playing really well. And they were getting ready to offer me a contract. And we lost our foreman in the game. So they had the contract on the table. Agent was there after the game. We were going to sign it. And in the warm-up, um, everyone was dunking and showing off. And the foreman blew out his ACL. And that was American citizenship, so they had to replace him. So I was like, all right, I, I knew that that was, that was my window. Like, it was one of those freak things. Like, if this happens, it didn't matter how much they offered me because the money is always good in those teams. But it, it was more a situation like this is, this is top five club in all of Europe, you know. And I played, when I won the championship with Victoria, it was a similar situation. Like, everything is, is the best right through. So I was I – was, willing to sacrifice and i went there which is unheard of you i just went there for training on my they flew me in and put me up but like you know the insurance and all these things was my risk i wasn't getting paid um so it was working in my favor and then that happened so after that i was like i'm just going home so the team was here training when i got home but all the media and everything shifted to me mm. and they had all 600 tickets sold but nobody really cared about them they only cared about me as a newfoundlander and what i what i could bring so on a wednesday we finally worked out the contract and i knew my family i had other offers in europe but i knew my kids didn't want to leave i knew my wife was on the fence but i really knew my kids didn't want to leave so i was like let's let's do it let's try it i mean everything that everything that was my nose or my negatives when i was weighing the options were all things that I felt I could control in the sense of, are you going to play well? And what do you, you know what I mean? So once mm -hmm. we figured out the money and different things, I knew, I knew I was going to perform. So I just had that confidence about me because I, people don't understand the level that European basketball was. And I knew the level of the Canadian league. So I knew, you know, even though I'm older, it's, it's 10 steps below what I'm used to, you know? So it's, you know, it will make up for the difference. So, um, so then we go and I signed on a Wednesday by Friday, there was 4,000. Then we went into the first game. So this is kind of like a storybook as well. So we're playing and, and your buddy old Dougie P was out here then. So <laughs> I'm struggling. I, I have one practice with the team and we're in, we leave on the road and we go to uh, PEI and I struggled most of the game. I think I only had 12 points, but we're down five with a, with a minute to go. And I came down. I popped the three, hit that, they missed. We come down, there's like 10 seconds or something on the clock. So we get in there and Dunlap, Coach Dunlap draws up a play. And I'm like, nope, scratch that. I'm like, I'm going to do this. We're going to do this, this, and this. And everybody <laughs> kind of looked at me. He's like, who the hell is this guy? And so we, we go and they agreed. They agreed to do it. So I go out there and then this guy comes out with a headband on and he was like their defensive stopper and he's hitting his chest. And I looked at him dead in the face, and the referee was there. And I said, "Hey, buddy," I said, "I want I want curse, but I, I have some choice words." I was like, "I'm going to cut down here. I'm going to come off that screen right there. I'm receiving the ball at the 45. I'm taking a fadeaway three, and I'm running down the floor with my hand up." So the referee starts laughing, and I mean, like, there's 10 people on the sideline. Like, I'm very cocky when I say this, and sure enough. <laughs> The exact play happens, and I hit the three, and their own fans went nuts. And the rumor, and the referee was like, "He said he was going to like, you know, what I mean, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy." So we got the win, and that story got out, and we went the following. So that was on a Friday night. Uh, we got to we got to Halifax, or that was a Saturday night. We got to Halifax at. I want to say four o'clock in the morning or something like that. And we played at 12 o'clock the next day. And I went out and dropped 38 in that one. So we had a good stretch and I, I start getting my rhythm and this whole, 
this whole myth was this this legendary thing was building like the status was building there was a sellout crowd now because you know like oh they signed english and he hit the game winner and he dropped 30 something and everybody that anybody that ever followed me wanted to see see me play mm-hmm. so um i'm not gonna lie i played in front of 40 50,000 people before i've been in hostile situations in dominican when you're 25,000 people throw money or hot pesos at you, coins to, you know what I mean, when you're playing Team Canada to, you know, the six or 7,000 at mile one. But the problem with that was, was I probably knew or had some relation to three or 4,000 of them, you know? So anybody, anybody, so your accountability just went through the roof. So they had this, uh, they had, they put on P. Diddy, I'm coming home to start the to start off. And like I go out there and I got like a standing O for like five minutes. And when I walk out on the court, the boys are like, the other guys from the other team, Niagara, are like, who the F is this guy? Like, who are you, Kobe? You know what I mean? And like they, nobody, only the Canadians in the league knew who I was, mm-hmm. you know? So I went out then and dropped 20. Uh, well, I had 18 in the first half, but it was like a loud 18. And on every, <laughs> on every point, I used too much energy, way too silly, silly, doing silly things, yelling and screaming. And I kind of just crashed. And then <laughs> I got to go, got some energy back up and we got the win. And I finished with like 28 and then followed that up the next night with like 30 something, 38 and beat the team twice and gotten a little racket. So Newfoundlanders loved that. And, <laughs> you know, kind of solidified our team and solidified us in the city and then we had an amazing season after that. I was scoring champ and MVP, and you know it was it was it was pretty amazing to come back home. And that's where the that's why I decided to write the book. So I brought in some flavors and things. So I was involved in management and th- different things. I was wearing too many hats to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd only focus on the game five minutes before the game. But the first mm-hmm. year was the first year was way more enjoyable. But you know just having being out there and we'd, we'd sign, like I'd sign autographs for probably an hour and a half after a game and taking pictures, just giving back to the kids that, you know, followed me and the parents, like a lot of it was the parents that followed me and now their kids are there and, and just giving hope to fellow Newfoundlanders or Canadians that, you know, like here's a guy from the small town and orphaned at five and, you know, been through the ringer and back and now look at him and look how successful things can be. If you, if you work hard, and you're determined and you believe in yourself, anything can happen. So that's kind of the message I was trying to portray. So it was pretty amazing to come back home. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's cool, man. And I obviously was a little more even in tune with it because of, you know, Doug, right? And so it's awesome, man. Man, you did him dirty like Larry Bird over X, man. You never, you know that story? You <laughs> did, did him dirty. Yeah. You pulled yeah, a bird yeah. on him. I love it. Yeah, yeah it was pretty well. <laughs> and then now, you know, moving into kind of retirement and you know i'm been following you on instagram and you've got your academy going and just talk about how fun that's been obviously you know it looks like a brand new facility so there must have been some thinking behind that and some time to get that prepared and you know moving into sort of this mentorship and coaching and um how has that been for you early on and is it something that you've been wanting to do for for a while like have you always viewed yourself as a coach or given back or um, it's something, I mean, I've, I've looked at this building for a while. So within, when the pandemic hit, it shut down a lot of schools and we don't have, we're lacking facilities out here to begin with on the Island. So mm-hmm. I've had, I've had major megaplex in the works for years. So I went and leased this building temporarily while I'm working on this bigger project. But what this does is it's, uh, so I have a sports management degree, a minor in kinesiology, marketing and communications. So what this allows me to do, it gives me a consensus study on what one court will bring me in revenue-wise to see if a massive structure can work. So um, it's been very intriguing. I think the most enjoyable part about it is, you know, just seeing the kids, uh, getting them back playing, getting them focused on, you know, the true values. It's not only basketball. I want to hold these kids accountable. I want to teach the hard work. And then the, the thing that I feel I bring to the table, like, a lot of ex-athletes that they can relate to is I'm from where they're from. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm Canadian, I'm Newfoundlander. So you tend to relate to your own kind more in the sense of, okay, well, he's from here and he had all these setbacks. If I work really hard, I can be better than that guy. That's kind of the message I'm trying to teach. So 
Um, it's been, it's been pretty, it's been, let's say challenging at times, but it's been very, very, very fulfilling as well. Yeah. Good. I love to hear it, man. And I think it's important too, just to have that perspective of giving back. And I totally agree. You know, the kids, probably the first few times, maybe if they've interacted with you before or not, they may be kind of, you know, walk in sort of looking up to you and then to have them be like, wow, this guy's actually, he actually cares about me and my, my skill development and me as a person as well. I mean, how do you not get empowered by something like that? And then, you know, we're at 58 minutes here chatting, but like to think about your whole entire story in one hour and all the things that you've been through, you're not just a model for people from Newfoundland, but also I think across Canada. And this is why I was, you know, I hope this episode really blows up and a lot of people get a chance to hear who don't know a lot about you. But I do think there's something really dope about you going back to, you know, where you're from. Um, you know, you can hear the accent and just representing who you are and showing kids that you don't have to go play pro in Spain, but like you can become a lawyer. You can, you know, you can get off the rock and get a degree and come back and give back to the community that meant so much to you. So good on you and more power to you for doing all that. I'm much respect for that, man. Appreciate it, man. It was a, it was a pleasure chatting with you and hopefully, uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. Absolutely, but we're not done with you yet. You got 15 minutes with us here. We need to find out who the true Carl English is. You got 15 minutes for us? I got a few. Not 15, but I got a few. Okay, we'll Kids roll through them quick. You're going to come through the door here any second, and it's going to be like a tornado in here. <laughs> School's ending. I love it. Okay, thoughts about ketchup on macaroni? No. Thank you. Uh, you drop the kids from at school, um, roll up to the store. What is the bag of chips you're grabbing? Oh, uh, Miss Vicky salt and vinegar. Ooh, we got lots of salt and vinegar fans. What is it about Hoopers and salt and vinegar corbs? I don't know what it is, man. Uh, Who's been the most important person in your life or people? I would have to say first, uh, first and foremost, would probably be my brothers, um, especially at an early age. And then, I mean, once I met my, my future wife and my wife, um, I mean, she's every behind, what is the saying behind every good man, there's an amazing woman. That's, that's an understatement. And now my kids, my kids also, I learned so much from my kids. I mean, they're my everything right now. Love it. Love that answer. Um, in your mind, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan. See how I couldn't yeah. say it fast enough? Michael Jordan. <laughs> Could be you already knew, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No explanation needed. Um, two more questions for you. Who's the greatest player you've played against? Who? Um, Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I saw that. You got to play against Kobe, huh? Awesome. Yeah, Kobe story. Kobe story. Yeah. Um, Kobe's job was to shut down the best defender on the other team. Now behind him, he had four future Hall of Famers. Um, <laughs> he faced by me. So he, he'd get in my ear and he'd grab my right elbow and he'd just squeeze it. And then in my ear, it'd be like a train. Then I'd run faster and he'd go faster. I'd knock his arm off and say something. He just wouldn't say a word, just stone cold. Pretty crazy. <laughs> That's amazing, man. Um, okay, you said you were going to shout out a quick, quick plug to some Newfoundland rappers or whatever you're rocking in the truck. What you got on your Spotify? What are you playing? What are you listening to? Uh, I love country. I love Luke Bryant. Um, Luke Combs is probably my favorite right now. Don't get me wrong, I like a bobber on the water. Hook him and reel him I like a Friday night slow. I do rock the Newfoundland music with... Alan Doyle and Shani Canuck and Mark Mann. So, probably not what you expected. Um, if you wanted me to throw some rap in there, it's probably going to be Drake. Yeah, all the Canadian content's got to be done, right? Got to be done. <laughs> Amazing episode. And last but not least, if you could do it all again, you would what? If I could do it all again, I think I would probably go back to my senior year of Hawaii and sit down on the bench, be, uh, not on the bench, on the beach, because I've already graduated and, and work on my game to get me ready for the NBA. And I probably wouldn't be in LeBron James draft class, which will arguably go down as the best draft in the history of the NBA. 
that would have been your year. That would have been my next year would have been my year. Crazy. Yeah. Well, you know what, man, regardless of all that, I mean, you, you must be able to reflect and look back and think, you know, of all the great things that you've been able to accomplish. And I think the thing that I enjoy and I hear in your voice is that you know that that's, it's still not done yet. You still got great things to accomplish. You're living through your kids every day and your wife and your family. And, um, I think that's even more important than being a good Hooper man. So we wish you nothing but continued success. Super thankful that you were able to sit down with us. Um, this is a special episode and I can't wait for, you know, all our listeners to take away so many great things and learn, learn more about Carl English and what it means to just fight through adversity and, and continue to grow as a person. So thank you so much, man. Well, awesome, buddy. All the best with the podcast and everything else. I appreciate the, I appreciate the time. Thank you.